Hi folks, Jack Spirigo here with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 636, March the 31st, 2011. It's a Thursday, and today we're going to talk about storing food. I'm going to go through some of the stuff we've talked about before, kind of my rules and my methodology for storing food and the reasons I believe that it makes sense to do it that way and how you can formulate your own food storage plan without just filling up your garage with a bunch of MREs. I also want to talk to you today about why. I want to bring some recent facts about global food shortages to you. And I don't want to scare you. I'm not going to be telling you, there will be no food. The shelves will be bare in three months, like some people do. Because uh, I don't think that's going to be the case. But I do think the cost of a loaf of bread and the cost of a gallon of milk will dramatically increase in 2011, 2012, and beyond. And I mean dramatically increase more than what we've been accustomed to in the past for a variety of reasons. And I'm going to give you some recent uh, mainstream news reporting on that. Before I do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Harvest Eating. That's Chef Keith Snow. Uh, really great website, really great recipes, really great instructionals, really great discount program that he's got, really great membership program that he's got. The big thing with, with Keith and HarvestEating.com is that, you know, I talk about all this stuff like orange and kale and all these things that you can grow in your garden that, you know, people generally don't grow. They pretty much grow peppers and tomatoes and maybe some onions and peas. And, and all of a sudden you you realize there's all these other options that taste so much better fresh. And some of the stuff you won't find in a store because, let's face it, if you chop some orach up and you know put it in a truck and ship it somewhere, and a couple days later it doesn't look very good. It doesn't look like when you you know cut it out of your garden. So Chef Keith focuses on eating locally, eating sustainably, and eating seasonally. So all this great stuff that you grow or you can get fresh from your farmer's market, Chef Keith will teach you what to do with it. So check out HarvestEating.com today. Next up today, Emergency Essentials at BePrepared.com. Again, I don't know how they got that domain away from the Boy Scouts, but they did. And it's a great domain for them because you know what? They help you be prepared for whatever may come your way, including a great assortment of long-term storage food. And we'll be talking about the place that I think that really long-term storage, commercially prepared food, plays, you know, where it belongs in your food storage plan today a little bit later. And if there, you know, there's a lot of great places to get that stuff. We have other sponsors that do it, but Emergency Essentials is a great one. Check them out. Make sure you check out all the information on their website and make sure you get a copy of their catalog. They'll mail that to you a couple times a year for free. And I call it prepper porn because it's just cool to sit there and look at all the great stuff that they have to offer. Next up, I want to remind you that we have some new stuff in the gear shop, specifically some really cool lanyards uh, that are made from paracord uh, with some really great hardware on them. It's really high-quality stuff. And uh, they're $4.95, these little uh, bottle openers that are, look like a dog tag. They're made out of stainless steel. They have great artwork on them, thanks to Sister Wolf at the gear shop. Check those out at $4.95. You can afford a couple of those to give away to your friends, and you'll be supporting the show, and you'll be supporting the store by picking up a couple of them. We're trying to bring in like the lanyards and the, and the, uh, the bottle openers. Some stuff that's some good EDC uh, or at least highly functional stuff that you can use, not just vanity items like T-shirts and hats. We're trying to bring more functional tools into the store, so check those out. I did a post on them yesterday you'll find at the blog right underneath this episode. Um, Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only members, and you get discounts. Let's talk about some of the one of the discounts you get. If you're MSB, you get 10% off all the items in our gear shop. So, for instance, you can get one of those dog tag bottle openers and lanyards I was just talking about. Well, if you get two, you know, one of each together, they automatically give you two bucks off. Then you can get another 10% off if you're an MSB member. Ain't that cool? And that's just one example. There's over 25 companies that we provide discounts to now through the MSB at 50 bucks a year. Hey, man, I'll tell you what, you're going to get a return of investment if you are making investments in long-term preparedness, uh, gardening, and everything else like that. There's no way around it. Plus over $100 worth of free eBooks and plus video. 
videos by me that are available nowhere else. I just keep making it better. And again, you support the show at 20 cents an episode. And with that, I want to get into the main topic right away today. Um, what I want to start out with is I want you to understand that in America, we have this illusion that we're somehow immune to the things that happen in the rest of the world. We look at what's going on in Japan right now with the tsunami and a nuclear meltdown. And, and that one reactor is in bad shape, really bad shape, worse than I thought it was. I want to point out to you that I, I'm still not running around popping potassium iodide tablets. I'm not freaking out about that. I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about being irradiated from Tokyo to here, or Fukushima actually, to here. Because I understand physics and distances. And it's just not a big concern for me. Is it a minor concern? Sure. Do I pay attention to what's going on? Yeah. But I'm not freaking out about that. I am kind of concerned over the economic impacts and the impacts to our global food system. So that, that's just one example of something that's going on right now. And we don't get a tremendous amount of food from Japan, but if you look at the Sea of Japan and all that area around there, a lot of seafood comes from there, and there's going to be real concerns over the quality of that food. Even though I'm not worrying about being irradiated in the middle of Texas from Fukushima, because I, I, I think like a, you know, a modern human being and I, and I understand physics, I'm not real hip on, you know, maybe eating some food that was picked up by Japanese fishing boats off the coast of Japan for quite a while. Uh, I'm also very concerned that some of the area around Fukushima may be lost for centuries. I, I don't know if it's going to happen. I'm not sure. I still don't think this is a Chernobyl-level event, which, by the way, didn't irradiate anyone in the United States either. Uh, was there some radiation exposure? Yes. Did it matter? No. But um, if Japan effectively loses even a square mile, it's a bigger hit for them than for us here in the States. It's a small country, very densely populated. They need every resource they can get. So there's an economic impact, and anything that hits the economy hits food. And that's just the start of it. I want to go ahead now, and I want to play for you. Uh, this is off of Fox News, and this is from January 14th. So everything you're going to hear now, I want you to understand, is aggravated by the situation in Japan. Uh, but again, this is mainstream news, Fox News, uh, from January 14th this year, just a couple months ago. Give it a listen, and we'll come back and talk about a few other things before we start talking about actually storing food. Fox News alert on the world food supplies. We have been tracking this story for a few days now. And it is getting quite some attention. Food supplies getting very tight. And on the commodity markets, food prices soaring to levels never before seen. It's been gradually showing up in our supermarkets, and you're going to pay for it in your pocketbook. And Fox Business Network's Eric Bowling has been warning about this and now says it could get much worse. We did, we, we had you on two weeks ago. Remember these? Yeah, remember this? And it's happening. What? What, is, what exactly is happening globally that is affecting us in our local supermarket? Yeah, we're having a, like a confluence of bad things going on right now. Our, our supplies are already low in, in, of food, corn, rice, coffee, sugar, wheat, supplies low. Now we're finding out the USDA tells us that, guess what, that the crops that we're expecting to come out in the next, uh, at least the two harvests, may be light as well, which means prices are on the rise, all coupled with I don't know if you watch it, at the bottom of the screen once in a while you see an oil price go by, um, $92 a barrel, $91.48 right now as we speak. Those prices are going up. Here's the issue, Megan, when corn prices went up, when rice and wheat prices went up two years ago in 2008, it sparked food riots. Now that was on the heels of a $147 barrel of oil, $4 gasoline. We're only, when I say only, I mean only in relationship to $147, we are only at $92 a barrel. If we were to go back to $147 a barrel like last time. The uh, sound you're hearing in the background there is a split screen with some rioters, just so it doesn't, uh, you know, you wonder what the heck that noise is. So go back to the tape now. That would push all these prices 60% higher. That's a big problem because these prices are high right now on the wholesale level. They're making their way to the supermarket. Go to the supermarket. And the thing is, they're, they're the not only talking about higher prices, which right. is which is a big enough concern, but they're also talking the World Economic Forum apparently warning that a rising global population, uh, greater prosperity, are putting unsustainable pressure on resources. And they say, yeah. Eric, we could be looking at the specter of shortages which could lead to social, political instability, geopolitical conflict, and irreparable environmental damage. I mean, this is something that could affect us on a 
on, on, on many levels. Not, not could, will affect us. You see this, I'm holding up rice right here because in 2008, when oil went to $147 a barrel, rice prices spiked to $25 per 100 metric tons. They're right now around 20 If we were to see that again last time, the food riots that you saw on the side of the screen a little while ago would be would pale in comparison this time because people aren't as well off. The last time this happened was on the heels of a very robust world economy. We're not there right now. They, Megan, they were actually giving out cards, credit cards, to buy rice so people wouldn't starve. It's a bad situation, yeah. getting worse, and if we do, if the globe does grow like you mentioned, it's only going to push prices substantially. And now they're also talking about this flooding in Australia, yeah. uh, which where the, there's apparently a lot of cattle ranches that have been affected by the flooding. Right. And so now importers here in the United States that rely on that meat to fill orders for restaurants and so on are saying well, they're going to have to look elsewhere. And that may cause some problems because, you know, there's been some problems with importing meat from other places like South America. So now Americans could be affected in more ways than, than they know. Let me show you how these things work. Uh, Australia is... It, known for producing two things, a lot, of, a lot of meat and also a lot of wool. What happens with the meat? Meat prices rise, they've been going up. Wool prices, what else do you use uh, besides wool as a complementary item or commodity? Cotton. Cotton traded today, the highest it's traded in 147 years of trading at all-time high. Prices affect each other, so when things like flooding happen, floodings happen in Australia or Storms happen elsewhere. They push prices higher, and the and bottom line is, the grocery bill is going to go up. Yeah, it's all tied together. Eric Bowling, thank you. Thanks, Megan. Well, there you go. Um, you know, being mainstream news, there's no real talk of things like you know depleting aquifers or uh, the loss of arable land or anything like that. It's just a straight up economic situation. And it's a good analysis. It really is. As more and more countries move more and more people uh, from rural situations into urban situations, you have less food producers and more food consumers that are not producers. And, you know, everybody's a consumer. But the farmer produces, consumes, and produces a surplus. Uh, the urbanite consumes at a detriment to, uh, you know, what he produces. He doesn't produce any food. It's not anything against urbanites. Hell, I'm an urbanite right now. I'm trying to become a non-urbanite, but you know, and I've been that for a decade. It's not like I'm a bad person. I even growing food in my own garden for over a decade now. You know, it, I still consume more than I produce. I'm not a farmer, a true farmer. Um, keep that in mind. That part of the issue here is that we have more people moving from cities to to urban environments. I want to read some stuff to you now from. Um, uh, ARS Te Technia, I think is how you say the site. And um, it's called How to Feed 9 Billion People the Future of Food and Farming. I want to mitigate this a little for you. Because the number that's being thrown around right now is about 9 billion by 2050. I'm also hearing some, you know, sensationalize the number. This is global population, going to be 10, 12 billion or something like that. And it's easy to believe. But the actual estimates for population, uh, from, from the uh, United Nations themselves, which tend to, you know, make things a little bigger than they are because it gives them a little bit more money, a little bit more power, a little bit more alarmism. So, if anything, they tend to make a number higher, not lower, uh, especially in a report like this. But the number they're actually circulating is about 8 billion and some change in the population leveling and going out uh, to 2100, actually declining some. And I think that there's a few things there. One, if you have enough food shortages and shit goes on like this, people die. Uh, and another thing is that as people urbanize, they have less children. And that's just simply fact. And the more people move into a comfortable life, the less children they have. There are big families still in America today, but the average you know, home is, what, 2.3 kids? I think it's actually less than that now. That was a long, long time ago that stat was the case. There's a lot of families out there with one kid. Because it's easier and, you know, we're not so worried about having somebody to work on the farm with us and things like that. So that move is happening, but it only mitigates things so much because every time we move somebody out of the rural environment, we take away a producer. So let me read some of the some of this article uh, to you here, just some parts of it, and I'll give you a link and you can read the whole thing if you want to. 
Uh, facing a convergence of threats, the global food system is failing. Each month, the global population grows by another 6 million. Now think about that, folks. 6 million. There's only 300 million people in the United States. So that is what 1% would be 3, 2% of our entire nation, the world grows by every month. So that means 24, a quarter of the United States, quarter of everybody in the United States added to the global mix every year. Uh, going back to there, uh, another 6 million. And, and, and an even wealthier world means one with more purchasing power, which drives up prices. Currently, the global population at 7 billion and change. More than a billion of those go to bed hungry. So a billion people in the world go to get bed hungry. Another billion suffer from malnutrition. And trends suggest that things will get worse. 2010 was the first year where more people lived in urban rather than rural environments. By 2050, we're going to need 30% more food, 40% more water than is currently available. Um, again, 2010 was the first year that globally more people lived in urban than rural environments. That's a big cross. And I think that we have this vision of the third world where everybody is still living out in the sticks and, you know, uh, not consuming resources. And, and this is a problem. And this is where environmentalism run amok has led us astray. It really has. Um, the environmentalists will tell us, well, the United States only represents like 3% of the world population, but we consume 25% of the world's resources. Well, I don't believe that. I do not believe that, and I'll tell you why. Because I've been to Panama City, Panama. I've been to Bogota, Colombia. I have been to uh, San Juan, Costa Rica. I've been to I've been all over the world, literally. And anywhere I've gone in the modern time frame, if you went to a building, it had electricity and a stove and an air conditioner. And, yeah, you can show all these peasants living out off the land still, but go to Brazil. Go to Rio de Janeiro. You know? Go to uh, go, go to China, any of the big cities in China. Man, they're burning plenty of coal. They're burning plenty of oil. They're drawing plenty of power. And what I mean by that is, is I don't want to totally flip that on its head. Well, the United States is just fine. We, we're not using that much. We're only using the, like what we should be. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the, to sensationalize it to that point gives this illusion that the rest of the world isn't drawing on resources like oil and gas. And they are. Hugely. And the growth is phenomenal. In China, there's 1.6 billion or 1.7 billion people. And more and more of them are moving to urban environments and they want a means of transportation. Sure, many of them are riding mopeds, but a billion mopeds eat a lot of gas every day. So I'm not putting anybody down. I'm not making excuses for America. What I'm trying to do is paint a more realistic picture of the resource draw that the entire world is creating. Nations in Africa, where we see these pictures of these poor people in the Somali desert, and they're wandering from one camp to another, and they're living on rice dropped out of an airplane, and yes, there's places like that. But Africa is urbanizing like crazy, and it's developing like crazy, because the Chinese are developing it. It's their, it's their new world. I mean, that's how China's looking at Africa the way that the U.S. looked at the Far East and our development through the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Having a place of cheap labor, a place to import from, a place to invest in, a place to develop. So all of those places that we have typically looked at and said, oh, that's just, that's, you know, that's, that's the desert, you know. Africa's not all desert, for God's sakes. It's some of the most fertile land in the world. What's, what it's been lacking is development and education and infrastructure. The Chinese are building it, and that's good for the African people and of all those nations there. It really, now, I'm, am I saying the Chinese are nice guys? No, they're doing it for money. Right, and they're bringing some of their, their their heavy socialism there, but not at the level they are in their own country. And, and you know, they're not trying to take these nations over; they're taking them over economically, just like we do. Right? I mean, that's that's the facts. But as those nations develop infrastructure, education, resource uh, development, as they develop uh, cities and organizational structure in them, they're going to want means of transportation. They're going to want electricity in their homes. They're going to want running water in their homes, and shouldn't they have it? 
So the, what I'm trying to get to is the population doesn't have to grow to 12 billion for a massive increase in the draw on, supply, on the supply. All we have to do is take people who have traditionally had nothing and get them something, and when you add up billions of people, a little bit to everybody takes a huge piece of the pie away. And we're going to see not just rising prices, but legitimate shortages. So I want to read a couple more things to you before I go on. Uh, just one more, and then we'll talk about what to do about all this. Uh, this is on Bloomberg. This was from March 31st, 2011. Guess what that is? That's today. So this is as recent as I can make it. Food commodities rise seen swamping consumers with inflation. Uh, this is by Nicholas Larkin. Um, March audiences up here at the beginning. Update prices the sixth paragraph and add super fun forecast for the tenth. Don't know what the hell that means. All right, March thirty first, Bloomberg. Uh, coffee, sugar, and cocoa prices will rise five to tenfold by twenty fourteen. Coffee, sugar, and cocoa prices will rise tenfold by twenty fourteen. Uh, five to tenfold by twenty fourteen because of shortages that will mean consumers getting swamped by food inflation, according to Superfund Financial. The lack of farmland and rising costs means growers were failed to keep up with demands at Aaron Smith, Managing Director of Superfund Financial Hong Kong Limited and Superfund USA Inc. Commodities account for about 40% of Superfund's $1.25 billion in assets under management. Smith correctly predicted that record copper prices in November and a month later, rigidity rightly anticipated that silver would outperform gold. The United, so he's got a track record of being right, in other words. The United Nations Index of World Food Prices jumped to a record last month, contributing to riots across northern Africa. Hmm, Africa, where have we heard that before? And the Middle East that already toppled leaders in Egypt and Tunisia. Global food security is threatened by excessive price volatility and speculation. Farm ministers from 48 countries said in a joint statement after meeting in uh, Berlin in January. There's a tremendous shortage of food. There's a tremendous shortage of arable land, Smith said in an interview in London. Any kind of food products are going to increase. Coffee jumped more than fivefold in the two years uh, through J July 1994 and more than tripled from February 2002 to March 2005. Sugar prices rose fourfold from June 2002 to February 2006 and more than tripled from June 2007 to February last year. Cocoa advanced 242% from December 2000 to January 2003. Um, and, and the rest of this is really more toward investors. So again, I'll, I'll provide links to everything today you can go look to. I just kind of want to sum it up and then let's get into how you actually do this stuff in a smart way that actually works for you. What we've got is a time in history that we're entering that everybody wants to deny. A time that's never happened before. A global population that continues to grow and increase and increase its demand on resources. And those resources are not just food. Yes, I'm talking a lot about food today because, well, we all have to eat. And if we don't eat, you know, uh, we die. That's how it works. And if we don't eat enough, we become malnourished. Uh, if we don't eat enough uh, and become malnourished long enough, we become sick and eventually we die or we get really, really ill. But there are so many other resources here that are reaching... Kind of a point of peak where supply and demand are crossing over to a point of no return. Where demand will constantly exceed supply that are connected to our food supply. And the two big ones are water and oil. And we can believe whatever we want about we're being lied to by the media, we're being lied to by the bleeding hearts, there's plenty of oil. But the fact is... We can look at global oil production, and we can look at global oil demand, and we can see very close that we're hitting a bell curve, where we're kind of hitting a plateau, where you just can't make more. It doesn't matter how much is in the ground, we can't make more. The whole infrastructure is pushed to its limit. We have the Saudis that are supposedly, oh, they can just ramp up anytime they want. And then their, their chief geologist tells the U.S., and we find this out through WikiLinks, and everybody wants to kill Julian Assange and some private from the Army, but maybe this is a good little piece of information to know. We find out from the chief geologist in Saudi Arabia, uh, yeah, you know what we've been saying about being able to ramp up production anytime we want? Yeah, we can't really do it. Can't do it. Uh, it's a lie. 
We have people like T. Boone Pickens that purports to be, purports to be a, a big fan of green energy that wants to corner the gas and water market. He's more concerned about cornering water than gas, folks. Uh, the, 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 the new term for fresh water reserves is blue gold. This is what we're, we're facing. And then on top of that, the biggest export the United States actually has has nothing to do with anything we produce. It's topsoil. There's like some, it's an ungodly number of metric tons of our topsoil just dries up, blows away, and ends up, you know, out in the oceans because of the way we farm our land today. And that's just, that's just fact. We have concerns that the dust bowl could return. I think some of that's being done again to put the squeeze on small farmers with some dust preventing equipment that's very expensive and only the big conglomerates can do. But there is a legitimate concern when you look at that. I mean, you know, I have, I have my pool cleaned. It's perfectly clean. There's nothing on the bottom of it. And this time of year, in two days, do you know what's all on the bottom of my pool? Dirt. Now, no one swims in the pool this time of year. It's too cold. Where does the dirt come from? It comes out of the air. How does it get into the air? It blows up into the air. What is that dirt? That's topsoil. And that's because this time of year, the crops aren't fully grown yet. There's nothing holding it down. God forbid we would use mulch in modern agriculture. And that's our topsoil blowing away. I can see it in my pool two days after it's fully cleaned. And this time of year, it's every week. Every week I have to clean it out because the dirt forms in the bottom of the pool, even though no one's using the pool. This is just fact. And that's I want to frame that fact for you today as we kind of go through uh, food storage. Now, food storage does not have to be complicated. Hopefully, I've lit a fire under your ass today to take it more seriously if you're not already doing it. I mean, the number one rule that we always talk about here is store what you eat and eat what you store. And I don't want to go too deep into that because I talk about it all the time. And a lot of you guys that are long-term listeners have heard it before. But it really is easy to do. It is as easy as this week I'm going to buy one can of this or one box of that, but instead of buying one, I'm going to buy two. And yes, my grocery bill goes up when I do that. But if I'm smart, what I do is I move immediately into the second rule of food storage, which is taking advantage of opportunity buys. And I specifically double my purchases on things I have coupons on. I specifically double my purchases on things that are on sale. I specifically uh, double my purchases on things that are maybe buy one, get one free or anything like that. Anything that increases uh, my ability to rapidly start to put away some extra food. The key here is to really focus on eat what you store and store what you eat. It's so important. Every time I talk to somebody that's outside of the, the modern survival lifestyle, that's not, even if they're interested, they're just, they're just not there yet. They're not doing it and they're not practicing or they're just starting. I get questions like, what about spam? What about spam? I'm like, dude, you like spam? I mean, if you like spam, go buy a buttload of it. It's inexpensive. It's, it's protein. Uh, but I think it tastes like crap. So if you come look at my pantry, uh, you will find absolutely no spam. Why? I don't like it. So I'm not going to store something I don't like, or should I just fill up a bunch of buckets of rice and beans? Do you like rice and beans? I mean, there's a place for them. We'll get to that in a bit. But if you if you at least passively like some you know nice rice and beans, and you have some ways to prepare that, and you can you know maybe have five buckets of each, and you're using two of those buckets at any one time, and when they're empty, you refill them and put them in the back, and maybe it even takes you like you know, six months to use a bucket or longer, but you're using it, you know, maybe once a week you're making some rice and beans as a side dish or something, knock yourself out. Go get some rice and beans right out of the gate. Makes perfect sense. But if you, like, hate rice and beans, if the last time you ate rice and beans was at a Mexican restaurant, and the time before that was at a Mexican restaurant, the time before that was at a Mexican restaurant, you've never actually cooked rice and beans in your life, it still might be something you do for emergency long-term storage. But it sure, sure as hell isn't where you start. Because it's just nonsensical. And then, you know, the same person that's doing that, you say, well, let's look at what you eat, and you eventually find out they eat pasta. You know, like, you understand pasta is inexpensive. It stores damn near forever, just like rice and beans. And instead of storing massive amounts of rice and beans, you could be storing fairly large amounts of pasta. You get a little bit of protein and a little bit of fat there. You get good carbohydrate base. And, you know, it's just as easy to store as either of the other ones, and it's very inexpensive. And you're basically storing wheat. And, and, and then they're like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. Well, you know, and then you talk to them, like, and they eat pasta like once a week. 
If you eat some sort of a pasta dish once a week, you should have four or five big buckets of pasta in all the different, you know, elbow mac or, or you know, twisties or uh, what do you call it, penne or, you know, whatever, angel hair, whatever it is you eat. You should have that set up and stored in buckets with O2 absorbers. That stuff will last longer than most of us will. It really does. I mean, it, it's damn near infinite, especially in a light-deprived, dry, oxygen-deprived environment. I mean, to store that stuff, it's great to put it in Mylar. Don't get me wrong. I'm doing a big bucket uh, liners of Mylar. But honestly, you can put it in the bucket, toss a couple O2 absorbers in there, slap a good lid on the top of the thing, and set it aside. And you could open it up anytime you want to, pull a, pull, pull a package of it out, and uh, keep going until that bucket's empty, and then re refill that bucket. And, and you've got a great store of carbohydrates. And you didn't have to do anything eccentric or anything crazy, and at least you've got that one thing... And with some things like butter powder and cheese powder from the long-term storage stuff that we'll get to in a bit, you, you can add some fat and you can add some protein and you can add some variety to it. Canned goods are great. I really look at canned goods as a two-year proposition, though. I have opened cans of food that are three or four years old, and I really can't taste much difference in them. Sometimes they start to get really texturally weak, in other words, they get soft to the ex extreme, even for canned food. But most of them don't seem bad. M what I've heard, and I've never been able to confirm this through laboratory analysis or anything, is that eventually their nutritional value depletes. And the food tastes okay, but it it's loses even, you know, because canning already takes some of the nutritive value out. But my, my problem with that analysis is, where did it go? Right? Did it go into the liquid that's in the can? Well, then we could drink the liquid. It's still in there. In other words, where did it go? If there was a nutrient in that can, how did it get, you know, and can it, I can't see how it could become, the, the, the can itself becomes permeable to the nutrient and doesn't lose, you know, it, it, the canning uh, quality itself. At that point, the can would bulge and it would be no good. It would be thrown out. So I don't know that I really believe that. And I have seen some canned goods that are four or five years old that to me seem just fine. But I try to keep my rotation at about a two-year minimum. And really one year is where most of it's at because we store what we eat and eat what we store. Chicken soup's great stuff, right? Now, I don't try to eat chicken soup every week or every day because I worry a little bit about the safety of commercial canning in the first place. But, it, you know, again, there's, there's poison in a typical button mushroom. It's just not enough to kill you. There, there's, there, there's cyanide in grapes. It's just not enough to... There's, there's toxins in everything. We can't become like, you know, we're going to be like toxin immune to everything. We can't get any... You know, like live in a bubble like Bubble Boy. So, I, you know, I do try to mitigate those concerns a little bit with, you know, maybe having one or two canned goods uh, or maybe one, one canned good item per meal and, and that mainly being just for dinner or just for lunch. So once a day having a canned good... But that lets you rotate through a fairly large stock of canned goods. I really like things like wolf chili. That's another great one. It can be so many things you can do with that. You can take some wolf chili, some ch fresh cheese or cheese powder, and some macaroni and make a pretty damn good chili mac. And that's something any kid will eat, and that's a good quick meal for a mom to whip up on a busy Wednesday evening. So eat what you store, store what you eat, and look for those opportunity buys. And the opportunity buys are... Really a lot like a capital deferral. You're going, this is the big thing. When I talk to me, well, it's going to cost so much money. You're going to spend the money anyway. You know, I, if you're dead broke, I can understand putting $10 worth of gas in your car until you get some more money to put another $10 worth of gas in your car. Hopefully one day you'll be able to fill it. However, for most of us that can afford to fill our vehicles at a regular frequency, we keep the vehicle full. Why? We're going to drive somewhere off and we're going to use the gas anyway. And we don't seem to have much of a problem with that unless we're dead broke. And if you are, I feel bad for you. But again, even if you're dead broke, if you can scrape up extra to do a little bit of surplus storage, it's probably more important to you than a person that's not dead broke. You're closer to that individual disaster of not being able to buy food tomorrow. So the more you store, you, you know, and that's the big thing I want people to understand. I've heard from people that like had to dip into their reserves and their their quantity of food stored starts to go down and they start to like feel real bad about it. That's why it's there. 
It's not just for the end of the world as we know it. It's not just, they're coming to get you. Make sure you have food hidden under your house. It's not what it is. It's for any reason that you can't afford today to go procure or can't get access to food today. There's something there. That's what it's for. We got laid off, and I was laid off for 30 days, and we went through about half of our reserves. And I, I, you know, I don't know what to do about it. You get your ass back to work, you put your life back in order, and you start storing food again. You're, you're, you're happy that you had it. That's what you do. You did good. So opportunity buys and eat what you store and store what you eat. Another thing we have to look at is it, there is a place for long-term storage items. And I think that there's a place to, at, at some point I think you need to say, you know what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to save the money and we're going to put away 30 days worth of long-term storage goods to feed everybody in the house. Elite, and that's a minimum, 30 days. And if we eat what we store, store what we eat and we do that, we're going to have two months. If we just do those two things, we're going to have 60 days worth of food at all time in the home. And we may very seldom draw from the long-term storage commercially prepared or individually prepared. Things like we do ourselves, like rice and beans, pasta and buckets, things like that. Um, dehydrating our own vegetables from our own garden, putting those up in large stores and things if we have surplus. Um, but we're going to get a lot of security from that. But then the other thing we have to start doing is we have to start looking at those long-term storage items and say, what can we start integrating into our daily foods? For instance, um, Honeyville Grains makes a great egg powder. If I cooked you up an omelet using the egg powder from Honeyville Grains, there is no way, no way on God's green earth that you would know that that's not a fresh egg. It is some of the best egg powder I've ever used. So, when we're cooking a cake that needs an egg, we can use an equivalent amount of egg powder. If we're going to make an omelet today and the chickens didn't lay for us today, we can whip up an omelet using the egg powder. We can do the same thing with the milk powder. We can use, And then we can use like cheese powder. Those milk, egg, and cheese powder from Honeyville, those are all just awesome, awesome products. And what we can do is we can put up, let's say, six of each into our long-term storage. But we can take one of those six of each and put them into our pantry, and we can use them as an ingredient to cook with. We, you know, we wake up one day, we're going to have coffee, there's plenty of coffee because we store that, and the milk's either gone sour or the kid came home and made chocolate chip cookies like my son used to do all the time and drank the last of the milk and there's not enough milk for coffee. Well, we whip up some milk powder into some fresh milk and now we can cream our coffee. And we're going to do a, a, an ingredients for the cake, and there's only about a half a gallon of milk left, and we know that Dad likes milk with his coffee, so Mom uses the milk powder instead of the fresh milk. There's just, and it's, it, 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 I'm not going to go through all of the permeations that we do in our own home, but there's just so many things like that that these long-term storage items can become part of. If you get dehydrated vegetables in number ten cans. Carrots, peas, onions, celery, things like that. You can take out one, put it into the pantry, and use it. So you could take out like uh, you know, like carrots. If you had dehydrated carrots, uh, dehydrated celery, dehydrated onion. Well, that's a mere pot. That's a good cooking base. So you could take one can of each and use them every time you're doing something that needs that as a base. Maybe you add uh, a can of, of mixed green and red peppers. And then you do the peppers, the celery, and the onion, and you've got the Holy Trinity, which is for kind of your, your, your Cajun-based types of foods. And either one of those are great bases to cook so many other things, and now you're actually using the long-term storage food. And when you run out of one, you order one or two more, and you put them in your long-term storage, and you take one out of your long-term storage from the front, and you put it in your pantry, and you go on with life. So now we're actually using the commercial long-term storage food. We're not necessarily using the things like, you know, uh, chicken tetrazzini or something like that that's a, you know, a full meal in a can. That stays and maybe once in a while we draw on that just to try it and learn from it and use it. I think it's important that that long-term storage food, once in a while you open something and you just use it. Um, I've done Mountain House uh, freeze-dried pork chops on the grill for family. They didn't know they were freeze-dried. They're like, these are great. I'm like, yep, they're great. I didn't even tell them. Didn't even tell them. They didn't need to know. And, you know, that type of thing has to be done once in a while. 
The big thing that we're going to have to do, though, is we have to realize something. The problem is not going to go away. It is only going to get worse. The United States, like I said, I don't believe the crap about we used, you know, 99% of the world's resources and we're only one-tenth of one, you know, the sensationalism that every left-wing liberal hippie whack job that does an environmental presentation to the cult of global warming says to the nth degree. But we do use more than the rest of the world. That much of it is true. And we don't get to keep doing it. Because the little guy in China, he wants some too. The little guy in Nigeria or the little guy in Tunisia, he, he likes some too. And they're not going to just sit and not and let us have it all anymore. They're developing their nations. They're developing their societies. And they're developing things for themselves, finally. The whole world is becoming more modern and more civilized. Now you look around and say that's nuts. Look at the the warfare here and the stuff that's going on in Libya and you know the the oppression that's going on. And I understand all of that, but there's a global momentum forward toward more urban style lifestyles, more stuff, more resources, better infrastructure, better distribution, better economies, and more prosperous people. That's where the world's going, and that is creating a crisis as insane as it sounds. So your food prices are not going to go down over the long term. They're going to continue to go up. You're going to work harder to buy a carrot. You're going to work harder to buy a cucumber. You're going to work harder to buy a tomato. These are going to become real issues for real Americans and not just the bottom, the bottom poor. In fact, the bottom poor... We'll be getting handouts from government and food stamps to buy the cucumber, the carrot, and the tomato. The lower middle class to the upper middle class and everybody in there, and don't let them create the class warfare between those groups because they don't need to be there because the guy that you think is so much better off than you really isn't because he's living in a place that where he makes twice what you do but he pays twice what you do to live there. I know that's by his choice. But society has tricked him into believing it's necessary. And my point is, all of you are going to feel it. The families out there with a $150,000 household income, you're going to feel this. The families out there with a $50,000 household income, you're going to feel it. The families with a $25,000 household income, you're going to feel it. From one end of the spectrum to the other, nobody is going to be immune. And it will not get Better because we know, we know, and this is not conspiracy talk, we know simply by looking at history from 1913 till 2011 that the Federal Reserve will continue to devalue our money. So in addition to the food shortage, we're going to have a weaker dollar to buy the food with. And we know that no matter how much we want to believe that we can grow so much food in America that if you drive through the Midwest during harvest season, you see all those big combines and tractors and it looks so pretty when they're staggered out and they're doing all the harvesting, that those big giant tractors don't run on freaking jelly beans. They run on oil. And the oil's in source. So even the harvesting costs are increasing. The farmers aren't getting more money. The end seller's not getting more money. Somebody's getting more money. I'll tell you who that is. That's the people at the top. And they're doing it through the devaluation of the money and by printing money on demand. Because every time they print money on demand and devalue your money, they get to keep some of it. That's the nasty little trick. So that's going to happen. So what does this have to do with food storage? It means that we need sustainable solutions individually. Sustainability is a great word in governmental circles today. We have politicians, everybody saying, I see a new world and a new vision where we will have green energy and sustainable systems. And if you ask the ass cloud saying it, please define sustainable for me. Most of them wouldn't be able to even tell you what the word means, yet they crap it out of their mouth every other word whenever they're pandering to a certain group of people. You can't promise sustainability when you don't need when you don't know what it means. What does sustainable actually mean? The ability to endure. It's the simplest way I can define sustainability. If you have a system that is sustainable, it can endure the future and continue to do what you've asked it to do. So modern agriculture is not sustainable because it depends on finite resources that are becoming in shorter supply. 
And no matter how much they manipulate the genes and spray the crops with stuff that you don't want to eat in the first place, they can't make it sustainable that way. Because it's impossible. So it's up to us to start creating sustainable solutions individually. And then the good news. The good news is it's actually much easier for an individual to create a sustainable system than a county, a state, or a nation. It's much easier than even a city. The smaller the people working on the sustainable system, the more likely it is to actually be sustainable because it's not as easy to delude yourself. What I mean by that is a city may think, you know what, we have figured out how to burn our, our garbage and create uh, biogas out of it, methane, and that's a sustainable solution because there will always be garbage. <laughs> well, what runs the trucks that go get the garbage? What does it require to make sure that garbage exists every day? It requires people to be able to buy stuff. Now, am I saying that's a bad idea? I think it's a wonderful idea. And I think every major city in America, instead of putting all this crap in the landfill, should be doing methane harvest. And I think it would be a big step toward energy independence. But unless we take care of some other stuff, it's still not sustainable. And it's easy to be deluded by that because you look at all the people out there throwing stuff away every day and you don't realize if their prosperity fails, they don't have garbage anymore. You know, if you go to a place where people are starving and you look at their trash heap, there's not a lot there. They don't throw a lot of stuff away. So when you're an individual and you're setting something up in your backyard to be sustainable, you know what parts of it are sustainable and what, what's not. If you're doing aquaponics and you're growing your own duckweed and you're, you're even, you know, creating your own, uh, your own feed through things like mealyworm cultivation and stuff like that, you're probably to do the mealyworms, okay, well, you're probably still buying oatmeal. So you know that there's, there's a limit there. You're probably still using some pelletized feed, so you know there's a limit there become critically aware of all of your limits so you do everything you can to mitigate them and individuals and families can produce much more sustainable microsystems than large entities I think that then those uh, minutia systems those tiny systems can be expanded largely in use and I think that the best test beds are the backyards of enterprising Americans all over America So what all of this means is it brings me to one of my, my final rules of food storage, and that's become a producer. And there's a lot of ways that you can be a producer. There's what I call direct and indirect production. Direct production would be what we were just talking about, an aquaponics system. You're growing your own duckweed, which you know, duckweed's so easy to grow. You set up a couple kiddie pools to keep it covered, you know, uh, inoculate it with some initial duckweed, and it'll grow, and it'll double its size like every couple days. Now you can take that duckweed and crump it up into little balls and freeze it and feed your fish with it. Pretty cool. And you can feed, and you, you know, they need other things, but man, you can feed tilapia a lot of duckweed. That can be a huge portion of their diet. And there's certain varieties of duckweed that are very, very high in protein, and then that you're producing the fish, and you can eat the fish. That's direct production. You take the leftover fish, and you use that, and you compost it as part of your composting, uh, and that becomes nutrient for plants that you're growing in a conventional way in your backyard. You can take all of the uh, all of the vegetable that you're producing uh, as part of your hydroponic systems and eat it, and that's direct production. You take the, the scraps, and you feed it to your chickens, and they produce waste, and you see all of these things are direct production. You're either producing fertilizer or food directly. But if we only limit the concept of being a producer to direct production, we're short-selling our own capabilities of individuals. Indirect production means that we are taking some portion of the production process, but not all of it. An example would be if I go out and shoot squirrels and I make squirrel stew, I'm becoming a producer, but I didn't raise the squirrel. Nature did. If I go out and shoot a deer and I come away with 70 pounds of meat off of a nice-sized deer, that's a that's a northern deer, by the way. These southern deer, I won't get 70 pounds of meat off of. Um, but let's say I get uh, 50 pounds of meat off of a deer. Well, I've produced that meat. I've taken some of the production uh, onto my responsibility, and I've let nature do the rest. If I uh, keep a little feeder in my backyard and that keeps the deer around and I harvest two a year that way, that's a hell of a lot easier than raising, you know, even a miniature uh, a miniature cow. And it's a hell of a lot easier on the land because the deer are easier on the land because they're a browser and they move around a hell of a lot more. 
So that's a type of production. Now, then I can go to another level of, let's well, we'll call it third-party production or indirect production. Uh, I, I shoot a deer and I have a lot of venison, and some of it's like meat that I want to just freeze for chops and steaks and stuff like roasts. But then I cut a bunch of it up and I turn it into biltong, and I cut some of the rest of it up that's not really suitable for biltong, and I can it so that I can make really quick uh, venison stew. So I have canned potatoes from the store. I have canned venison from my own efforts, and I can put the two of those together with some fresh carrots that are still growing in the wintertime and uh, maybe some dehydrated celery, and now I have venison stew. Sounds good. I'd love to eat a bowl of that right now. Maybe I'll whip some up after the show. Well, the canning process and the biltong process are both methods of me being a producer. I'm producing a long-term storable item. So I can take this to the point where I build a great big solar dehydrator or get myself a nice Excalibur dehydrator and toward the end of bean season I go down to my local farmer's market where they're just trying to get rid of all the surplus of green beans and they're selling them for 59 cents a pound. And I say, I'll take 20 pounds please. And they look at me like I'm crazy, but I, they say, fine here. And I take, you know, maybe all their green beans. And I take them home and I cut them up and I dehydrate them and I put them in jars with O2 absorbers or in, I like to use the, uh, the, the food grade paint cans you can get from a company called the Carry Company. Drop a couple O2 absorbers in with them, put the cans on them, label them, stick them into my, uh, my can storage system. And guess what? I've produced a long-term storable for a hell of a lot less than I could buy. And I'm using a much more sustainable model. Getting green beans from Farmer Johnson is more sustainable than getting canned nasty green beans from Kroger. It just is. I can grow my own, and I can dehydrate some, and I can buy some locally, and I can dehydrate some of those. So anytime I take any level of the of the the production process in hand, I'm becoming some level of a producer. It's not the same level as if I were to go out and do 100% of it myself. That's full production. But there's so many things out there that we can just acquire. I need to do a video before we leave. There's little things that you can do. Let's say I'm going to make up a salad for lunch today and save the deer stew for dinner. And I've got very little growing here today because we're moving, and I didn't want to put a lot of effort into the garden um, this spring because, honestly, I thought we'd already be gone, and I know we'll be gone in a couple weeks now. So there's some kale out there, and there's some spinach and some other stuff. You know, There's some um, new, uh, what do you call it? New Zealand spinach that's growing on its own. There's some lamb's quarters that are volunteering. But those are all things I planted. But right now I have uh, a ton of something called henbet, which is a member of the mint family, but it doesn't taste minty, uh, growing all over the yard. I have, um, what else do I got out there? I got chickweed everywhere. So I could go out and make a salad right now out of my yard, and some of it's direct production that's just coming back from previous years, and some of it's just what grows wild, and I can harvest that. Um, my grandmother used to like to make blueberry and apple cobblers. In the spring, we would go up into the mountains, and there were wild blueberries everywhere. And we would pick them, and she would just jar them and can them. And uh, then when you made cobblers, pretty much you dumped the, because they're already sweetened and everything from being canned and pretty much cooked, you dumped them into the pot, you put the cobbler batter on top, you bake the cobbler batter to its brown, blueberry cobbler, done. She liked to do, and I like the apple better because the blueberries was always a little bit too sweet and overpowering for me. I prefer a fresh blueberry to to that type of a blueberry. But with the apples, there were literally these these kind of like crappy apple trees everywhere. Every, I mean, they were just from people eating apples and throwing cores, and they started from seed. They were, they were all over the place. They were over the bottom of the mountain, just growing wild. And these were not great apples. To, to sit there and crunch on maybe maybe ten apples off a huge tree would look like that's an apple I want to eat. We'd always eat them and we'd toss the cores, right? It's sustainable. Uh, but a lot of them you could pick, you just go out there with a couple buckets and pick a couple buckets of apples and we'd bring them home to grandma and she'd just cut off all the good part. And then she'd, she'd can that. And then we had, you know, jar, you know, jarred apples. Sweetened, ready to go. Dump them. You can, you know, you could do anything with them. Eat them straight. And they were much better that way than they were as these tart little things that fell off the tree. Or we would get a bunch of them and grind them up and press them and turn them into cider. And they made a great cider. But that was like a very passive harvest. We did the same thing with wild strawberry. There was a lot of wild strawberry in the area where I grew up. Uh, down in Florida, I used to pick wild blackberries as a kid. Here in Arkansas, I got them everywhere. 
So foraging, hunting, fishing, all of this stuff goes into the producer level. It's not something you want to say, well, if the shit hits the fan, I don't need stored food. I'll just go out and shoot something or, or fish for something. Well, if the shit hits the fan that bad, I think there's some other people have the same idea, and the resources will get pushed really quickly. But if we all can figure out how to utilize and nurture these local resources and utilize them and produce will be in much better shape. And I think what I try to always sum up food storage and food production with is you need a holistic system. The person that just stores what they eat and eats what they store is never going to have more than about 30 to 45 days of sustainability. If that's the only thing you do, it's going to be a limit that you're going to bump your head into. You'll think it's three months. If you ever need it, it won't be. The person that just gets the long-term storage food, the mountain house, the alpine air, the thrive, the yoders, all that stuff, good stuff, but you know what's going to happen? It's going to get piled up, the dust is going to get on it, it's eventually become pain in the ass, and you're going to donate it to Salvation Army. And you're going to decide the disaster's not coming. If the disaster does come, it'll be there, that'll be great, but you know what's going to happen? You're going to open it up, you're not going to like it, you're not going to know how to use it, you're not going to be experienced with integrating it to the other things that you already have. You'll only go to it when you've completely depleted everything else, which is the wrong way to use food like that. The right way to use food like that is if you still have fresh food, to be making your fresh food and your, your com conventional food you eat every day last longer by using it as an adjunct. So you need to train yourself to do that. To do that, you've got to do eat what you store and store what you eat. So you've got to have that being holistic. To be able to effectively store what you eat and eat what you store, you've got to take the opportunity buy approach. Unless you're just wealthy beyond means, you've got to pay attention to what you're doing. And as you're building up your storage, you need to get your dollar to go as far as possible. So you need to focus on adding to your storage uh, where it's most financially advantageous at the time. You also get a, a kind of what I call a reverse opportunity buy, which means I was going to buy a jar of peanut butter this week, but there's no sale and they jacked the price up, but I think it's a temporary spike. Since I have five jars of it at home, I don't need it this week. I'll wait. I'll wait till I find a coupon. I'll wait till they put it on sale. So that has to be there too. When we move into production, if you just think I'm going to go live off the land and hunt and fish, it, there's a, a lot of problems with that approach. One is unless you live somewhere that's just like, really rich in resources. If you live and you know the Louisiana swamps, you could literally go out once a day and get your food for the day and you could probably make it through the whole year. If you got a little more than you needed in the winter, you know, in the summer, you'll make it through the brief winter that they have. There is a, there are ecosystems like that. Odds are most of us don't live in one. You know, you look at Pennsylvania and say, man, there's deer everywhere. I'd just go shoot a deer. Well, what does the first day of deer season look like in Pennsylvania? It looks like an orange army. And about a million guys, literally, I'm not, that's not an exaggeration, a million freaking deer hunters. Don't you think if we have a long-term food shortage, shit hit the fan, people are going hungry, kids are starving at home, that all of those guys are going to think the same thing you did? So, and then even in the, the good times, you can only shoot so many deer a year. There's limitations and legalities to deal with. There's seasonality. You can't go shoot a deer in August. Now, I know if the shit hits the fan and you're starving, the hell with it, you'll do it anyway. But on a day-to-day, -day realistic, real-world basis, you can't do that. So there's seasonal limitations. Fishing has much longer limitations, much longer seasons. But there's still seasonal times when you don't really do well with certain species of fish. It takes effort to fish, things like that. There's, there's limits to what the production stuff can do. It's like a direct harvest thing. There's limits to what the garden can do. There's limits to what your permaculture can do. But when you put all of that together, you can get a tremendous amount by being a producer. And when you marry it to all the other things we talked about today, and you create a really holistic solution, you get a very robust, resilient solution. A solution that if some part of it falls in on itself temporarily, everything else picks up. And you can get by, you know what fell in, so you're looking for the opportunity to compensate. So either you ramp up production when the ability to buy fails, uh, or, or when the ability to produce fails, you, if it's not at the same time, the ability to buy fails, you go out and you up your purchasing And you're also looking like, how can I correct this, this failure in production? Or how can, how, where can I find an opportunity to buy to correct this uh, limitation on what I can buy now? And eventually you get through whatever situation it is. And the person that lives this way is going to be much better off 
than their neighbor if they lose a job. They're going to be much better off than their neighbor if there's a trucker strike. They're going to be much better off than their neighbor if there's hyperinflation. They're going to be much better off than their neighbor if there's an end-of-the-world scenario that's worse than anything we can imagine. No matter what happens, they're going to be better off. Here's the important part. That person who gets that lifestyle into place and eventually gets over the initial hump of having to bring it all in and you go back to the stuff you're purchasing from the store, you look like anybody else because you're only buying what you've depleted this week. So you're basically doing what everybody else is. You just have a bank. right? It's like having money in the bank. You only write the checks to pay the bills for this month, but there's a savings account. And anybody that thinks food storage is stupid, it, it probably doesn't understand money either. Right? They're the person that lives paycheck to paycheck. They're worse than the typical paycheck to pay. There's cheap people that live paycheck to paycheck. Why? Because they have to. But do you know how many Americans live paycheck to paycheck by choice? Between their, their MasterCard, their Visa, their crap, their games, their, their gimmicks, their going out and partying and all that. They don't have to. They could be saving something every week, but yet they live paycheck to paycheck. And then we look at that and go, how foolish is that? You know, the person that's really stuck there that literally is just getting by. And just can't scrape enough money to get out of that cycle and just looking for a better job or a better opportunity or something. That person we have empathy for. But the person that's just doing it because they want, woo, party. Right? We're like, what a fool. And then the same person that looks at that person and sees the folly has no bank of food, no reserve of food. It's insane. I, I haven't met a person yet when I say, you know, do you eat every day? That said, no, I go like two or three days in a row without eating. Unless it's part of like a religious fast or something like that. We all eat every day and yet we squander that resource. It's insanity. But that holistic solution is what you need to be seeking. And hopefully starting out with some of the things that are going on in the world today is a little bit sobering and maybe it'll turbocharge you a little bit with your food storage. I think it's the one thing everybody can do and the one thing everybody needs to do. And I really want you to make sure you're not just storing rice and beans, you're not just storing MREs, and you're not even just storing what you eat and eat what you store. I want you to make sure you're taking some level of production. I have people like, you know, I did the container gardening show, so that's something you could do. But uh, people that are in apartments, you can still learn what you can forage in your neighborhood. You'd be shocked what you can forage in parks. And on public lands, you'd be amazed. Find a local expert that knows what they're doing and get them to teach you. Um, just here, we have parks that have pecan trees in them. And the pecans fall to the ground and rot every year. There's nothing stopping anybody from going out there and picking them up. I mean, it's that silly. You go out there and say, it's a pecan. You don't even have to have a lot of expertise to identify a pecan. I don't know anything that looks like a pecan that's dangerous. If it looks like a pecan, it is a pecan. And unless you're allergic to pecans, it's food. Go get it. Right? Chickweed, I don't know a lot in America that sooner or later, unless you chemicalize the hell out of it, doesn't have chickweed in it or henbed in it. It's food. Go get it. Put it in your salad. Eat it. Learn. I mean, that's as simple as some of this stuff is. Even if you live in an apartment, well, you can learn how to dehydrate. Maybe you can't fit plants on your balcony. You can probably fit a dehydrator on your balcony. And you can go to your local farmer's market and you can buy those 59-cent green beans and those bruiser tomatoes and bruiser apples and dehydrate them. There's always something you can do to take on some level of production. And without that, you're not sustainable. I mean, that's all that it comes down to. It's very important, I feel, for us to start developing sustainability on an individual level. And in fact, I think that's going to become one of our new things that we're going to talk about on the Survival Podcast. We've always talked about it, but we've never named it Individual Sustainability. I think it goes up there, right up there with self-reliance uh, and self, uh, self-sufficiency uh, and individual sustainability. I think the three of those are kind of like a core of what we're really all about here. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. Hopefully, this has inspired you to take your food storage to a new level. Hopefully, if you're a new person, you've realized now this is not insane. It's not crazy. And that there are easy, logical ways to do it. And there's many benefits outside of just having food if the shit hits the fan. The person with a pantry like this never runs out of anything. They never want to cook something and they're like, oh, crap, we're out of that. I don't go to the store, go to the next door neighbor, and borrow a cup of shit. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It's like having a store at your house. You shop your own home when you need to cook. And you eat so much healthier if you start producing. Uh, because you're putting a little bit of something natural into everything that you do. It's a great way to live and it's a great way to start being a more uh, self-sufficient and liberty-oriented individual. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. 
helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Revolution is you.